Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast in which we'll be discussing the review paper, Could Muscle Deformity in Children with Spastic Cerebral Palsy Be Related to an Impairment of Muscle Growth and Altered Adaptation? Which is written by Martin Goff and Adam Shortland in the June issue of the journal. It'll be discussed by Mr. Martin Goff of the One Small Step Gait Analysis Laboratory, Guy's Hospital, London, UK, and Dr. Lee Barber of the Queensland Cerebral Palsy and Rehabilitation Research Centre, University of Queensland, Australia. Can we start with you, please, Martin, to summarise the background of the paper? Our paper was written to see if we could explore possible mechanisms that may contribute to the development of musculoskeletal deformity in children with cerebral palsy. We have an existing model, but since the model has developed some years ago, there's always been an explosion of information and understanding in how muscle develops and grows and works. And we wondered whether that could be incorporated or somehow brought into our approach to cerebral palsy. We look initially at factors influencing muscle growth and muscle turnover, then look at muscle development and the importance of innovation, then look at what we know about muscle and cerebral palsy, which is very little, and then finally speculate as to how those changes may occur. The thing that was most surprising, also most interesting really, is how much goes on in muscle and how really how exciting and how plastic muscle is. Muscle is hugely expensive tissue in terms of protein, so there are pathways in the body to constantly monitor, to build it or reduce it. Muscle responds to all sorts of stimuli from the outside, mechanical, neuronal, endocrine, and the most important factors influencing muscle protein turnover appear to be muscle contraction and the mechanical ionic changes associated with it. We can't really simulate this by passive stretch, and it would appear that passive stretch and immobilization is more likely to result in muscle protein breakdown than in muscle improvement. For muscle development also, innovation appears really important. We know that muscle is innovated soon after it's formed. In the adult, or in the older child, each muscle fibre is innovated by a single alphamotor neuron. But initially, in the embryo, and we think for a period after birth, each muscle fibre is innovated by a whole number of motor neurons. This initial polyneural innovation gradually reduces that appears to be due to changes in the intrinsic networks in the spinal cord, which again are related to the influence of the corticospinal tract. So an interruption in the corticospinal tract is likely to lead to impaired development of the intrinsic networks in the spinal cord, and as a result, to impaired development of muscle fibre, both in terms of growth but also in terms of the fiber phenotype, whether it's developing as fast fibers or slow fibers. The muscle also initially requires enough nutrition to grow and enough hormonal and endocrine support to grow, and this appears to be particularly important around birth. Children born preterm may have almost selective reduction in muscle fiber growth, presumably because protein supplies and innovation are limited, so they may already be at a disadvantage. Other factors that are very important are the balance between the contractile component of muscle and the non-contractile component. The muscle fibres have to exist in a three-dimensional framework of connective tissue, which attaches each muscle fibre to the tendon, and that balance is very important. Excess load on muscle or inflammation will shift the balance towards development of connective tissue, and early on, antenatal, postnatal life, certainly in animals, 
there appears to be a focus on the development of muscle fibre as opposed to connective tissue. If we look at children with cerebral palsy, there's a lot of conflicting information. There's a very nice review by Barrett and Lichtwork, which suggests that the only constant factor really is these muscles are all small. And we know that the gastrocnemius muscle in children with cerebral palsy is really small between the ages of about two and five years. So really from quite an early start, these are small muscles. If we were to speculate, it would appear that the problem with muscle cerebral palsy is a problem with muscle growth. And that results to a number of factors, primarily impaired muscle innovation, but possibly also early nutritional and endocrine factors. And on that impairment of muscle growth may then be added altered adaptation to loading, that these are small, relatively underpowered muscles, and with that altered loading comes a shift towards development of the connective tissue component of muscle possibly to protect it. Lee, do you want to add to that? The major points of the review are very thought-provoking, actually, and I think quite a number of researchers that are interested in uh, muscle development and also muscle growth in children with cerebral palsy, but also children that are typically developing, would be very interested in how you've summarised that, I, I believe. Now, obviously, it's a very complex topic, and in looking at the review that you and Dr. Shortland have written, a, a lot of the information has come from animal studies. And honestly, that's really the only place where the information at this point in time can come from, I believe. Do you wish to comment on that? What, what direction should we take first up to maybe explore what happens in first maybe typically developing children or either take a big jump and have a look immediately into children with cerebral palsy? I agree. There's an enormous lack of information and it's, it's hard to find information even on typically developing muscle in children, let alone children with cerebral palsy. I also agree that making inferences from studies in animals also is limited. There's a lot of different factors in animals. The time of walking and the ability to walk and what they do are all different, so it's a little bit speculative. We really need information on what happens in muscle. I think to start, it will be great to understand what happens in typically developing children. Whether it will be possible to assess image muscles with MRI or ultrasound, early on, I know that really nice paper was done, as we mentioned, looking at muscle fibres in your paper, looking at the growth of the gastrocnemius muscle in children between the ages of two and five years, and that was an excellent study. What we saw in that was that really from the start, these are small muscles. And also, if I remember that these muscles were a little bit stiffer and had limited dorsiflexion, so if we can understand how muscle generally grows and develops, then we can begin to understand what happens with children with cerebral palsy. Yes, I definitely agree that there needs to be more information about typically developing children, but it definitely becomes difficult, I'd say, ethically gain muscle samples or ethically gain information about these children. So in my mind, I always have this picture of, especially the information that you've presented here in the review, like piecing together all of those aspects that influence muscle deformity or muscle growth um, is potentially developing some sort of animal model that we may be able to use 
Now, the previous animal models seem relatively limited from my perspective, so that may also be a very useful way for us to potentially study these changes. But again, we're falling back into the point of, hey, we're studying animals, not humans. I think for the lack of a human model, they are useful, but I agree the corticospinal tract terminations in humans are different animals. As part of the review here, we looked up the information available on corticospinal tract terminations, where exactly the fibres end in the human. There's almost nothing on it. Even Ray's anatomy, the latest edition, makes inferences from primates. Well, technically we're primates, but we're actually humans. So in the animal studies, the corticospinal tract ends in different places, in different species. So if we want to model where we're looking at development of intrinsic cord networks and how that's impaired by altered development of the corticospinal tract, then we've got to be cautious that that may have a different effect depending on the experimental animal we use. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it, but it does mean that animal studies will have limitations. One option is to run animal studies in comparison with some human studies. I agree completely with the ethical limitations particularly the group that we would want to study, who are a very vulnerable group. They really don't need much more in the way of studying or experimentation. But one possibility would be something like MRI, where children have MRI scans early on, brain MRI. And if it was possible with the brain MRI to include some MRI of the upper trunk musculature, then even at that stage we could start to collect information about typically developing children and children who we think are at risk of an adverse outcome. I think the animal studies are important, but on their own, they may not tell us everything that we need. So that's a really good point. I do like the idea of potentially collecting a little bit more data when we do, as researchers, go in to look at other things, or even when specialists use imaging to gain some information. I don't think we use the imaging to the best of its ability at this stage and almost don't really get our bang for buck I do like the idea that if we could chase up some more information using some sort of imaging, that becomes difficult, I suppose, and really draws on the idea that we need a really good research team. And I know myself, my background is like physiology and physiotherapy, and so really I'm relatively new to this, I suppose, imaging industry. And even more new than, say, yourself as an orthopedic surgeon who would have been using imaging for quite a long time, I really feel a need to include some sort of imaging engineer or someone who potentially could go ahead and leave some bounds where sometimes even I feel like I'm sort of just keeping my head above water in understanding some of the imaging concepts. So maybe that's a useful way to get things to move ahead is to involve some other people in our research group that may be of benefit. I agree completely. The review was written, at least in part, to sort of attract interest, to explain, really to show clinicians how interesting this area is, but also how much support we need, as you said, from imaging and from basic science. And an ideal team would consist of a clinician and somebody skilled in imaging and some basic scientists, and that sort of research, combining, I suppose, translation research, combining basic science work with clinical intervention outcome, I think, is the way forward. I, I agree, trying to keep up with all of the basic science developments, and then trying to assume any sense of authority on it is impossible.
or the review written is comprehensive, but it, it wouldn't reach the level of authority that would be achieved by a basic scientist, a muscle physiologist. But what we seem to lack are links between the clinical side of things and basic science. And the really important thing will be to try and build bridges who can communicate more and use that shared knowledge towards a better outcome. That's correct. Maybe we need a little bit more time to sit around the pub and talk science, Mark. <laughs> yes. The other thing would be useful, there's other imaging modalities coming in that, um, apart from just taking anatomical views, you can do a lot more, which I don't think have been applied to muscle very much and possibly could be. Yes, there are. I think you can look at, again, and it isn't my field, but I'm trying to understand it. You can look at muscle metabolism. So you can look at clearance of metabolites in muscle. So it would be possible, theoretically, to look at the metabolic capacity of muscle and say whether a particular muscle was working effectively or less effectively, and then look at the effect of intervention. If you have a child doing an exercise program, then you can see, are their muscle, is the muscle oxidative capacity improved following that program by means of scanning? I agree. We've been focusing to a large extent on muscle in terms of a passive sense, just muscle length and joint range. And we've almost neglected the whole point of muscle, which is to function in terms of movement. And it's really looking at how the engine works rather than simply how big the engine is that's important. Yeah, that's another good point and how we really focus. And I say we is a very broad group of people that deal with individuals with cerebral palsy. We're very much focused relatively simple things to, to measure um, and have only really recently delved into other techniques to try and understand what actually is going on. Another thing, Martin, is you listed quite a number of possibilities that may be involved in the muscle adaptations or the muscle deformity or muscle growth. Do you have a feeling that one might be more important than another? Myself, I could consider cerebral palsy initially being caused as a, as a brain lesion. My initial read of this review, I kind of thought to myself, oh, we, we really need to kind of almost go from a top-down approach to try and research this. Yes, you and I are probably both more of a muscle-type researchers, but maybe we need to delve from that point where the injury has occurred or, or the lesion has occurred and how that progresses. And like you say, understanding how the innovation of the muscle develops and possibly even a step before that, what, what actually promotes these neural structures, structural growth? I agree. We're dealing with essentially the peripheral manifestations of central lesion. And I agree that the, the, the ideal way to promote muscle growth would be to understand and alter the neurological input to muscle because the altered neurological input allowing for nutritional problems and endocrine problems. The neurological input appears to be the main factor leading to impaired muscle growth and muscle development. But how we alter that is something that would need a lot more understanding, a lot more work. It certainly would be outside my level at the moment. It may be that the early factors that try to promote this, thinking of the improvements in perinatal care, for instance, the simple things like early Nutrition, optimizing initial protein supplies to neonates. Looking at inflammation, we know that, I mentioned earlier about the development of connective tissue and muscle. And in animals around birth and early on, the development of connective tissue seems to be 
relatively suppressed, possibly to allow for the development of contractile tissue, muscle fibres. But the connective tissue development can be boosted through the action of myostatin, which in turn is boosted through inflammation. So the treatment currently given to premature babies, which will involve optimizing their nutrition and minimizing inflammation, may well in themselves have beneficial effects on muscle growth. And their effect on the neurological outcome, I couldn't comment on, but they may allow muscle growth to reach its optimum even in the presence of impaired neurology. This is very speculative because I'm relatively happy with muscles when I go approximately. Right, so kind of uh, maximising what you can do with the, the muscle you've got, I suppose you're saying, Martin. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it would be great to alter the neurological input, but I'd have to sit down and, and read a lot more to even attempt an intelligent comment on that. I, I'm the same. I've definitely come from the muscle end. But obviously, as you've stated, the muscle is very, if I use the term, plastic and, and adaptive and responds to lots of different things. And really, I suppose, the the current way that we approach our treatment options for muscle are very simple again. And why that continues to be simple is always a question in my mind in that we continue to use certain pharmacological techniques like botulinum toxin. We, we use certain surgeries, but when you look at the surgeries, they're all very, very simple. And, and also even with respect to exercise, we even approach it with very simplistic approach to the exercise. So there's definitely, I think, options to become a little bit more, I'll say, creative, but potentially more scientific with our approach to the treatment options when we're thinking purely of muscle. And, and even to say combinations of the types of treatment. But there becomes another issue is that we don't understand the muscle and then we're also already providing treatments for the muscle. So therefore, it's very difficult to understand how the treatments have an effect on the muscle if we don't actually know what the muscle is doing originally. So I think it was a very important step. And at the time, I didn't really realise it, but the, it was a very important step with that our initial study looking at these very young children that had no, no treatment before. And so I think investigating children with no prior treatment becomes quite important, I think, to help us understand what is actually going on with the muscle. You made the comment about muscle being plastic, and that was probably one of the more exciting things that came from our review was we went through the reference that muscle in children with cerebral palsy is changed, but remains plastic. And our challenge is to take that plasticity and try to move the muscle towards better growth and better function. And the concern is that because intervention can tend to be focused on promoting muscle passive length, this may neglect some of the functional ability of muscle. It's hard to argue, if you take a step back, that denervating a muscle will promote muscle growth, and yet it, its use is widespread. In a similar way, immobilization of a muscle isn't going to promote muscle growth. We know that passive stretch in isolation doesn't alter muscle growth because of the pination of muscle, because of the way the fibres are arranged. If you want muscle to grow, you've got to get the fibres to hypertrophy. So all of these factors, it's also that we need to take a look at what we're doing and it's not that any of these treatments are inherently wrong, but 
look at the treatments we use in the light of their effect on muscle growth and muscle function and think, you know, are we getting a functional benefit from this treatment? If not, then why are we using it? If we are, is the functional benefit we achieve matched by an improvement in muscle growth and function? And if not, is the functional benefit that we achieve through treatment significant to disregard potential adverse effects on muscle growth? Yes, the different treatment options that we have def- definitely is, is, is limited and, and also the understanding of the effects. And so one of the important things I see is happening, I think, in the near future is that we need to really be able to monitor these changes that occur with these treatment options and take a step beyond measuring um, range of motion and and I will say clinical measurements of spasticity and having a few more objective ways to talk about spasticity and talk about muscle size and muscle growth and talk about potentially the mechanics of how the muscle and tendon work in response to these treatments and also in response to growth across time or or development in children, how these change. It kind of becomes a, a circle process that we're kind of trying to move things forward but we've We've kind of got to take a step back and start to understand what we're actually doing because really these treatments that we're providing at this point in time will continue on for the near future because, I hate to say it, we don't really have any other options. Or I know in speaking to rehabilitation specialists that they don't feel that they have any anything else to offer to families with children with cerebral palsy. So maybe it is an important time to step in and really start to nut out some research methods to measure these things, but also to move towards developing a few more clinically useful ways to measure important aspects of muscle growth and and potentially muscle function. I agree. I think taking a step back and trying to look at the whole area objectively is very important. I can appreciate the need for all clinicians to feel that they have something to do and something to give, but it may be that in some situations that what we're doing may not be helping. Other things that could be looked at is what we do about spasticity. Spasticity exists. It's a definite clinical sign, but the relationship between spasticity and the development of formality is sort of less than tenuous. And our focus on treating spasticity and in this way, trying to enhance growth may have deleterious effects on muscle growth in itself. So it, it, it is a balance, and all of our approach would benefit from almost a step back to say, well, you know, what are we doing? What's the outcome? Let's look at outcome measures. If, if we want to improve muscle growth and muscle function, then we need to be measuring muscle growth and function and treating a clinical sign and then measuring outcome on the basis of measuring that clinical sign may not in itself be very relevant. It, it, it is a concern, you know, that these muscle is important in a whole number of ways. Muscle seems to be very important metabolically. There was a really nice review about two, three years ago in developmental medicine, generology, a special issue on adults, and that was by Bowman. And looking at potential metabolic problems in adults with cerebral palsy. And muscle is a hugely metabolic organ in a lean adult, it's about 40% of body mass, and it affects overall body metabolism. It's the main target for insulin. So it affects overall metabolism. It affects bone growth. 
biggest factor in young people influencing bone diameter and bone strength is muscle cross-sectional area. So if we can improve muscle growth, then we can also improve overall metabolic function and potentially bone growth. And similarly, if we do anything to further impair muscle growth, that may have metabolic consequences and also other consequences. We're not, there's much more to muscle than passive length across the joint. Yes, it is, is very interesting to see that uh, is underexplored in humans for sure and even more so unknown in individuals with neurological disorders. Do, do you think that the muscle development would be different in children, let's say, that have hemiplegia versus diplegia? I always wonder if we're grouping people together under the umbrella of cerebral palsy, but should we be actually approaching things a little bit differently with respect to our research and also our treatment? It probably needs to be broken down even more than that. Eva Ponton looked at the flexocarpal nerves in a group of children and young adults with hemiplegic cerebral palsy and looked at the relative proportion of low and fast muscle and found that that varied as the severity of the hemiplegia increased. So the, the less involved children had more slow muscle and the more involved children had more fast muscle, which you'd expect from a disuse model. There's a study two or three years ago by Noel Moreau and Diane Damiano looking at fibre length and pination angle in the rectus femoris and in the vastus of children with cerebral palsy showing different changes in fiber length and pination angle between neighboring muscles. So rather than a standard pattern of change in muscle and cerebral palsy, what we get is a change that's influenced by individual muscle morphology, by the underlying neurological lesion, and by other factors then such as possibly early nutrition, inflammation, and subsequent use. So if we really wanted to study muscle, we'd have to look at the particular muscles, so we, we group individual muscles and then try to match the children as closely as possible. Whether children with hemiplegia and diplegia would have different changes, I don't know. It, it, it's possible, but then the danger would be that we study a broad group of children with hemiplegia and a broad group of children with diplegia or bilateral involvement and miss subtle changes in both individual groups, if that makes sense. Yes, I do understand that. Like you say, the, the things that you see, like from my exercise physiology background, you, you see how different muscles respond differently to the same sort of training and, and also detraining. So you kind of can extrapolate that, I suppose, to children, but then also to individuals with cerebral palsy. We do see responses of different muscles, even in typically developing individuals. So why should we expect there to be a standard across muscles in, in the lower limb and then muscles compared to the upper limb and the, and the lower limb in individuals with cerebral palsy? We, we really need to do the best we can to try to make a homogenous research effort to understand what's going on with these muscles. But otherwise, we end up with, like, Martin said we end up with these small changes just being lost in the variability because our samples are, are not close enough. Thank you. Well, Arthur, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Or? The closing message of the review would be a very positive one that 
we tend to look at deformity as a struggle and something inevitable. And we focus on trying to treat spasticity and in this way hoping we improve muscle growth or alter muscle growth. But if we think that maybe it's not spasticity that's important, that there are other factors involved. And what's exciting is that muscle retains its plasticity. So muscle in children with cerebral palsy has the potential to grow and develop. And our challenge is to try to find the factors that allow this development and the factors that inhibit them and obviously promote one and hopefully reduce the other. But it does offer quite exciting therapeutic windows, which has to be positive. Well, thank you. We've now come to the end of our podcast time, so many thanks indeed to Mr. Martin Goff and Dr. Lee Barber for a really interesting discussion. We all see the effects of cerebral palsy on muscle growth in our day-to-day practice. What's clear from your discussion and the article is that understanding it and learning what the right interventions are to try and help it are much more complex than really I ever imagined, and I suspect many other people ever imagined as well. It's also very interesting to discuss what still needs to be found and how much of an open field it is. Just to remind our listeners that the article itself is entitled Could Muscle Deformity in Children with Spastic Cerebral Palsy Be Related to an Impairment of Muscle Growth and Altered Adaptation? And it's by Goff and Shortland in the June issue. Thank you.